We must obey God rather than man. Now, that saying comes from the book of Acts, and it is becoming more and more necessary than ever before to say it in today's culture. The question is, does the modern church have what it takes to say it and live it? This episode might cause emotional distress for weak-willed Christians, but if you think you have what it takes to pay attention, then listen in. Welcome to your favorite night of the week. This is The Deep End. Welcome in, everybody, Tuesday night, 7 p.m., 7 p.m., and I am your host, Tim Hatch of the Deep End Podcast, and I'm so glad that you are joining us, whether you are joining us on Facebook or YouTube or SoundCloud or your favorite podcast app or on the radio, welcome in. We are going further than ever with this content, welcoming in our W-E-Z-E audience, Family 590 in Boston, Massachusetts, on the Ride home at 4.45 p.m., 4.45 p.m. Also to our Spotify audience. Hey, we're going everywhere. Isn't that great? And if you are watching live, please let us know in the comments, whether you're on YouTube or Facebook, where are you watching from? Town or your place, uh, your, 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 your specific place, home, work, anywhere but the bathroom. So welcome in to Tuesday Night, the Deep End Podcast, where we dive deep into culture, and into the Book of Acts this season on the podcast. Okay, usually at this moment, we go into deep end news, but we're going to change things up today because what I love is your feedback. I love hearing your questions. So questions came in from last week's episode. One particular question came in, and then another question came in, and the, que- the second question actually applies to the content in this week's episode. So I think, let's do this. Let's do ask anything, shall we? And just to remind you, you can ask anything uh, through two ways, ask at deepend.tv or text anonymously to 508-316-9333. So those are the two places where you can ask your questions anonymously or kind of anonymously. If If you have your name and your email address, obviously it's not anonymous anymore. But anyway, We want to give you the opportunity to ask questions, and you can always ask questions in the comments sections right below me, so please feel free to do that. Oh, and if you're on YouTube, and if, oh, first off, if you're not on the Deep End YouTube, please go there and like and subscribe to that page and click the little notification bell. But if you are on YouTube or Facebook, you can always ask questions through the comments right below us as well. So I love your questions. Let's get into it. Uh, Ask anything question. The first question comes from Kelly Carlson. I think she is an avid Deep End watcher. Hello, Kelly. Glad you join us. She says, do you believe, and this is based on last week's content, do you believe in losing salvation or that they truly didn't believe in the first place? Well, Kelly, I I think that this question um, is fraught with a lot of problems, a lot of landmines theologically for pastors, because this is a question where a lot of people try to pigeonhole pastors into, oh, you're Calvinist or you're, oh, you're Arminian. And I'm not a Calvinist, and I'm not an Arminian. I'm neither of those. I am a biblical Christian, and I hope you are too. A biblical Christian says, what does the scriptures, particularly in the New Testament, say about salvation? And what you see consistently, and we're going to see this through our study in the book of Acts, is this, that it is God who saves. It is not we who save ourselves. It is God who saves, okay? It is not we who save ourselves. You can't save yourself, and you can't earn salvation. It is a gift, Ephesians 2.8, right? So the question, though, becomes, well, somebody looks like they're saved, and then they walk away from the faith, like, like Joshua Harris, which we have talked about on this podcast in earlier episodes. What's the deal about those people? Well, I do believe that they were never truly saved in the first place. That's my belief <clears throat> based on how I read the scriptures. First uh, John 2 actually talks about this, that they went out from among us, and they're going out from us, prove that they were not really of us. Uh, for if they, had been on, if they had been with us, they never would have left. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about those who will come to him at the judgment day and say, hey, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not prophesy? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then what does the Lord say? I will say to them, I never knew you. And remember, now think about the word, I never knew you. He's not going to say to those people, I used to knew you, or hey, we used to be buds, but you know, sorry. <laughs> no, he says, I never knew you, which means it is entirely possible to put on the Christian 
the Christian uh, appearance, the Christian representation, the Christian lifestyle, and not truly be converted to Christ. See, it's important that you understand, too, Kelly, and the rest of our Deep End listeners, that salvation is a work of God, and it is a miracle. Like, when we look at the miracles of the Old Testament, these are historical stories that apply to Israel, but they are stories that illustrate also that unless God intervenes, we are hopelessly lost. So Egypt is like our, the symbol of sin and hell and death that we are all stuck in. We're, we're slaves to sin. Romans unpacks this. Paul talks about this. And God, through ten mighty works, if you remember the ten plagues, breaks the heart, breaks the will of Pharaoh, releases the people. They didn't do it. He did it. And by the way, they groaned, but God sent Moses to save them. And then even as Moses is saving, you read these Old Testament stories, they all make sense. Even as Moses is saving them and they're walking through the wilderness, it's really interesting to see how often they want to go back to Egypt. How often they're like, we're tired of being out here in the wilderness. We want to go back. What are you doing with us, Moses? I mean, they, they want to be saved less and less the more that they're saved. And God keeps saying, you're going you're gonna to be saved. This is what I'm going to do with you. And, and so it's a picture and then, of course, even within the number of Israelites who were, who were in the wilderness walking with Moses, many of them were not fully saved. They had the appearance of freedom, but they weren't heart and soul with the Lord, and they died in the wilderness. In fact, the whole generation died in the wilderness. Well, this is nothing new. There are always false Christians. We talked about this last week. There are counterfeit Christians wherever there are real Christians. You need to be, you need to be aware of that so that you're not caught off guard when people walk away from the faith. It's going to happen. It's going to actually happen in increasing measure as the day of the Lord's return draws near. In fact, Matthew 13, Jesus talks about that specific. I'm sorry, Matthew 24, verse 13 talks about that, that they that endure unto the end shall be saved. It's going to be a great falling away, falling away meaning that these people had the appearance of salvation and were not. So I would say, to answer your question, long story, long answer, but here's the short answer. I don't believe they were truly saved in the first place. And... Salvation is a three-tenths experience. It is past salvation, present salvation, future salvation. So, you know, there's a lot of Christians that debate about this. It's really, not, it's really a semantical debate because if you say, well, I was, if, you, if you're of the opinion that, no, they really were saved and then they gave up their salvation or they lost their salvation because they, based on what, by the way? Because if you can't earn it, how can you lose it? If you can't earn it, like if you can't do anything to get it, the question then becomes, well, then what can you do to lose it? That's a problem, and, 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 and there's no real answer for that on the, you know, the quote-unquote Arminian save-yourself side. So um, the point that I'm trying to make is that you, you get salvation by a gift. It is a miracle work of God in your life, and those who can sometimes put on the appearance of salvation and look saved and then lose it, they never really were. And, and so when you argue about, well, they were, they looked, and they, or, or maybe I'm of the opinion, the, the theological opinion, they were saved, and now they're not saved. Well, they weren't ever saved because they didn't get fully saved in the end, right? They didn't, they didn't finish. So three tenses, right? Past, present, future. Past sins forgiven, present sanctification happening, future salvation when the Lord returns, or when I die, going to heaven. I think that settles that question. I hope it answers your question. I hope it helps. Ultimately, I hope that in our quest to decide about these things and come to biblical faith around these matters, I hope that your intentions and the intention of every Christian is, I really just want to love the Lord better. Like, your intention for asking whether or not you, should, you can lose your salvation, your intention should not be so this, to, to find this answer, well, I can't lose it, so that means I can do whatever I want. Like, that's, no, that's not why you ask these questions. The intention has to be, I want to know this so that I can love my Lord better. And I think that the security of salvation in God's grace, that he who, who called you is faithful, right, to bring you to completion, that's Philippians 1.7, uh, the, the God who calls you also sanctifies you, that's 1 Thessalonians, uh, the, that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. That's Hebrews chapter 12, right? All these things bring us confidence and I believe a richer and deeper appreciation and therefore love for the Lord. So I hope that that's the intention behind the question. I, I, I believe that is your intention and I hope 
whenever that debate starts to get sparked in Christian circles, our intention for answering it should not be to find some kind of loophole way of being a Christian wherein we can just claim eternal security so that we can go and do whatever we want in sin. Wrong, Christian. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Okay? It should be about what biblical truth leads me to loving the Lord more deeply, more richly, more gratefully. Okay? So week after Thanksgiving, but Christians do not celebrate Thanksgiving once a year. We are daily thankful because today God is good. Amen. Okay. Second question coming in. I think this is anonymous or it was in the chat last week. I'm not sure who wrote it, but here's the question. Any tips on being an introverted Christian? I would love to give back, but the thought of talking to strangers makes me so nervous. The thought of being assigned to a small group is not any better. If only Jesus was a Buddhist monk living in solitude. <laughs> okay. That's a great question. Love the honesty. I don't want to laugh at you. I love the honesty. Uh, I think what you're talking about, um, questioner, is, is which I, I know what you're saying is, I am inter- you're saying I'm introverted and I want to find a way to minister even in my introver- in, introverted lifestyle. Okay. Well, there is a way. It's called prayer. It's called intercessory prayer. It's called being a person who daily lifts up those who are public in the sphere of Christian mission. So pray for me, if you would. Paul actually asks repeatedly in his letters to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae in the first century, please pray for me so that I can declare boldly the the word of God as I should. And I covet your prayers, deep enders. I cover your prayers who watch this every week. Please pray for me so that I can be bold because we are living in an age where truth, as Isaiah said, is being cast into the streets and uh, basically being thrown up for grabs and everybody's truth is their truth and yada, yada, yada. And today's pastors and teachers and leaders of the church need to stand up and speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may, okay? So, that's my advice to you as an introverted Christian, and I would, I would really caution you, though, that, that you don't let your introversion, your introverted personality, keep you out of small group. You know, a small group, my philosophy of small group is this. Smaller is always better in small group. So maybe you're scared of being in a group with 12 people. Well, then find a small group with three people. Like, I think in a small group setting, six is better than eight, four is better than six, and three is better than four because when you have that more intimate gathering, you can talk more freely and you're not intimidated. So I would caution you, please don't let your personality keep you from meeting with other Christians. Don't let that be a cop-out. Don't let that be an excuse. You do need this. You need relationships with other believers. Jesus modeled this. Paul the Apostle models this in the book of Acts. We're going to see. And it is standard Christian practice. So that question was very welcome. Thank you guys. Keep asking the questions. Love it in the comments. And while you're doing the scrolling through the comments, please like and subscribe and hit the thumbs up button on YouTube. And if you're not watching on YouTube, uh, the Deep End YouTube channel, please head over there as soon as possible. Hey, we'll be right back with content from the Book of Acts. The Deep End Podcast is made possible by contributions from listeners and viewers like you. If you would like to give to support this ministry, you can go to thedeepend.tv slash give or through the cash app at The Deep End TV. We are in Acts chapter 5, but I'm going to just back up again. Uh, into our content from last week because it is important. Um, Today's title or today's episode is called The Church at Odds with Culture. The Church at Odds with Culture. So the last two episodes of the Deep End Podcast, we have talked about the church being in conflict. Uh, Chapter 4, the external conflicts that that start to attack the early followers of Jesus, that that very uh, newborn church in Jerusalem. And so... Chapter 4, they start putting some pressure on the apostles, and so that attack comes from within. Then, Acts chapter 5, we talked about the church with conflict, where the attacks not don't come from without the church, they come from within the church, 
And we looked at Ananias and Sapphira and the way that they portrayed, again, they portrayed Christianity on the outside, but inwardly were filled with satanic ambition. Tough passage. Tough passage to deal with because I think if there's one conflict that's worse than the other, it is the internal conflict. Amen? Like, I don't like... Conflict from the outside in the, in the church world, I understand that. I expect that. We should have that. But when it comes from within, that's always tougher to take. That's more personal. Like, you do life with these people. You love these. They were, they were brothers and sisters in Christ, and suddenly they're turning on you. I mean, that had to be hard for the early church in the book of Acts. Well, this is the chapter, chapter 5 in the book of Acts, where Peter famously says, we must obey God rather than men. And I love that line. And that is going to be the theme of this episode. We must obey God rather than men. Let that word sink into your spirit. Because no matter where the church goes, eventually, as it grows and starts to be the church and do life according to God's word, eventually, there will be an adverse reaction from the prevailing culture of the day. Now, the prevailing culture of the day is defined differently in every country or context and in every age, in every generation, even in every state or even in every region of this great country of ours. Prevailing culture on the East Coast is different than prevailing culture on the West Coast. Prevailing culture in Boston, Massachusetts, where we're located, is, is far different than prevailing culture in Houston, Texas. Not better or worse, just different. And the church is going to have to learn to handle conflict, inevitable conflict, with the prevailing culture of their locale and their context. So let's recap where we were last week on the deep end. Chapter 5, verse 11, after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, it says this, and great fear came upon the whole church. Underline that. Let me underline that. You can't underline it. I'll underline it. How about that? Great fear came upon the whole church and upon all. So the church and everyone else outside of the church had great fear. And by that, we talked about this, had reverence for the church. They honored the church. And Luke wants us to remember that. And so what happens after that? This is great. I I talked about this last week. Is it worth repeating this week? Verse 14 says, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. After the church is revered, more than ever, it grows. See? Honor for the church leads to the church growing. Multitudes of both men and women, verse 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, and Peter... As he came by, they hoped that his shadow might fall on them to heal them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And they were all, they were all healed. You have this tremendous move of God happening in chapter 5 of Acts. Why? Because the church is revered. The church is held in honor. And I I take you back to Mark chapter 6, where it talks about Jesus going back to Nazareth and his hometown and his family and his relatives dishonor him, disrespect him, and the scripture's clear. It says they took offense at him, and he could do no mighty work there. (laughs) In other words, because they dishonored Jesus, they actually uh, forfeited the opportunity to receive and experience the powerful workings of Jesus. And, And listen, friends, the church today on the earth is the visible body of Christ. It is the the body of Jesus in the world. And when the church is disrespected or dishonored in a culture, and and by that I mean by professing believers, okay, we should expect dishonor and disrespect from the world, but when it's dishonored by those within its own body, there will be very little God-sanctioned activity, God-inspired activity, if you will. In other words, miracles will not happen where the church is disrespected. I think we have to be clear about this because so many people wonder why the church is not 
effective. And sometimes it's because the church has no respect for itself. The church suffers from an insecurity complex. There's a lot of this going around the American church because we're not what? We're not what? We're not cool. We're not famous. We're not popular. We're not celebrities. So what? We're the church of Jesus. Like, I always get a kick out of the church when a celebrity gets saved, such as Kanye West or Selena Gomez, like two recent converts in the celebrity world. And some Christians look at that and say, oh, good, they're saved. That means it's real. Like, oh, oh, now our faith is something because this very important person believes it. Hey, 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 why does that? Why does their conversion lend credence to the gospel of Jesus? That, that should never be the case. Um, you got to think big picture here. The church of Jesus already has the most famous person ever within its ranks, i.e. Jesus, okay? You don't get much more famous than Jesus. <laughs> Love him or hate him, he's well-known, okay? He, he's the most famous human that ever walked on the face of the earth. How do I know? History is divided around his birth, death, burial, and resurrection. So you don't get much more famous than that. Why do we need to get excited when lesser celebrities get saved? Of course they should get saved, all right? Jesus is the ultimate, if you will, for lack of a better term, Celebrity, and by the celebrity, I mean well-known person. But anyway, when the church has this inferiority complex and disrespects itself, okay, there is a lack of the power of the Spirit. I really believe this. So think about your town, too. Like, when you go to some towns in America, the, the most dilapidated, old, outdated building in the town is the church on the main street. You go into the building, and it stinks. It smells like oldness. I don't know how else to say. It just smells old. The, the pews haven't been changed since 1852. The paint is peeling off the walls. The rugs are in bad shape. And people want to call that a church. I call that a dusty old building where the spirit left years ago. I believe that the church should have excellence because it is the representation. I mean the physical building where we meet too, right? Because that's where we meet to glorify and worship our Savior Jesus. And he's worthy of the best. The church should have the best music. The church should have the best um, creative arts in that context, in that town, city, state, region, whatever. Why? Because we are not doing this for men. We are doing this for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should feel and I don't mean this word in the bad sense, but in the good sense, we should feel a great amount of pride, good pride, in who we are because we are the body of Christ. Not bad pride, in other words, that we don't boast about ourselves and think we're all that, but pride in of ourselves of, of a sense of value and worth because of who we are in Christ. Anyway, let's take a look again at this verse because these, these miracles are happening in verse 14 to 16. And I want to remind us that this is the answer to the apostles' prayer from the first experience of conflict back in chapter 4. Remember, this was the, 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 the apostles, uh, Peter and John, go out, heal the, heal the lame man, and then the religious leaders attack them for it, and then they send them away, and they come back to the church, and they report to the church what happened, and the church doesn't back down. The church actually prays themselves up. And it says in Acts chapter 4, 29, this was their prayer. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And so what you see here is the church does not back down from conflict. The early church does not back down from conflict. And I have three just big ideas about this. The early church model for facing conflict. If you read the book of Acts, and this is why you, the book of Acts is there, to help us handle conflict because the church will have conflict in every context in which it finds itself. So number one, don't back down, rise up. You, you, get, you face conflict as a Christian, as a church, in your community or in your context, don't back down, rise up. Now don't be a jerk, but be bold, be strong in Christ. Number two, don't pray for protection, pray for boldness. We're always about praying for protection. We like to throw that phrase around, hedge of protection. There's this great Christian comedian. I think it's Tim Hawkins. He talks about you saying this. He talks about, oh, how did, I, how did they know? The devil talking. How did they know that my, my weakness was landscaping? <laughs> you know, hedge of protection, right? I don't know where that phrase comes from, but we're so famous for praying for protection. When the early church didn't pray for protection, they prayed for boldness, and they got it. We need to pray for boldness. And number three, don't expect less 
When you're in conflict with the world or conflict with the prevailing culture, don't expect less from God. Expect more. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to step in there. The great stories of the Old Testament. When everything was at its worst, that's when God did his best work, right? God pushes his people, Israel, right to the edge of the Red Sea. And then on top of the Red Sea, they've got Pharaoh's army charging in with chariots. And it looks as bad as it possibly could get. And it happened right before the miracle, the, the seas divide. You know, sometimes we'll never see the sea divide if we don't get pushed to the edge of the sea and somebody chasing us on our backside. Sometimes the church has to experience these troubles so that we look to God and expect him to show up in a big way. This was how the church began. And my point is to say this. Shouldn't we continue the trend that they started? Shouldn't we continue that like, what if we prayed for more boldness as Christians today in America? And let me ask you personally, how many of your prayers are for boldness? How many of your prayers are for miracles to happen in your life, in your church? Rather, rather than praying, oh, God, keep us safe, or, oh, God, you know, just surround us with your angels. We're going to talk about angels in a moment. Surround us with your angels. Keep us safe in the big, bad world. I mean, sometimes I get frustrated with those kind of prayers. Like, what if we prayed for more public notoriety, that we might make Jesus known. That's exactly what they pray here. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. In other words, we want to be more well-known, not less well-known. Of course, more well-known in making Jesus known. What if we prayed in our churches for things that the early church prayed for? I don't want to just pray for these things. I actually want to see them happen. And I would encourage you as a Christian to follow the biblical mandate laid out by our forefathers in the faith to pray for these things. Okay, now let's move on into the content because this is that was the that was the recap. So miracles are happening. Peter's shadow, for heaven's sakes, is healing people. That's how much anointing and power is on the church. But more conflict is on the way, and this is a continued theme in the Book of Acts: conflict in the church. Okay. Verse 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Okay, just want you to notice that this is the high priest, those who were with him, so that that 71-member group of the Sanhedrin. What does it say about them? As they see the church healing people, and by the way, not just healing people, but helping people and sharing their goods and selling their lands and giving the money to people who need it. They're basically becoming this incredibly socially oriented organization at the same time, supernaturally, spiritually gifted organization. And what does it say about the religious, the religious establishment? They were filled with jealousy. I just thought about like, this is proof positive that it is entirely possible to have an outward religious pretense and no inward religious reality. It is very possible because the high priest, the religious people, the guys who should have said, yes, people are getting healed. This is wonderful. Yay. God God is showing up. No. All they can worry about is, oh, why them and not us? Jealousy. Man, I'll tell you, it's still alive and well in the church today. When, when another church grows fast, how quickly the churches that aren't growing as fast start to get jealous of that church. And today, because of Instagram and all kinds of other social media platforms, we can get jealous of what God is doing in other people because he's not doing it in our lives. Well, have we prayed for it? Are we working for it? And secondly, are we satisfied with what God is doing? Are we excited about what God is doing in us so that we're not always obsessed with what God isn't doing in us but might be doing in someone else? Anyway, this is just proof positive. You can have the outward religious pretense and no inward religious sincerity or religious reality. Okay, anyway, moving on. They're in prison, and verse 19 says, But during the night, an angel, okay, an angel of the Lord, opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, and I want you to just look at what the angel says, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Now, remember, they had just been arrested for doing this. In chapter 4, that's exactly what they were doing. They healed a man who was born lame, and then he runs into the temple, and then they cling to Peter and John. This is Acts chapter 3. And then Peter sees the crowd running to them, and he starts to preach. And then they get arrested for that. 
And then they've been arrested now because they were doing healings and mighty works and people and the and the high priests and the leaders were jealous and they've been thrown in prison for a second time. And now the angel comes to deliver them. <laughs> and I love this. The angel says, hey, go back out into the lion's den over there. Go back out into the very place where you are going to be in the most precarious position and do exactly what got you in here in the first place. My question is simply this. Who says angels are only there to keep you safe? <laughs> because if they were there only to keep you safe, this angel would have said, run as fast as you can. Run, Forrest, run, right? No, go and stand. Go back to where you just got arrested, where you just got vilified, where you just got attacked, and stand your ground and speak the very message that got you arrested in the first place. An angel told him to do this. It kind of changes your theology about angels, doesn't it? Kind of, kind of makes, makes you rethink the mission of angels. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about the fact that angels, or Hebrews chapter 1, talks about that angels are ministers of those who are going to experience salvation. So here's the thing about angels. Some of you pray for angels. Some of you very unbiblically pray to angels. We shouldn't pray to them or worship them. But angels are there to serve the purposes of getting people saved. Okay, that's their goal. Their goal is to help the church get people saved. So if you want angels surrounding your church, angels surrounding you, be all about the mission of the gospel, getting people saved. I'm telling you, they'll show up. Okay, so verse 21. And when they heard this, they did it. I love it. The angel tells them to go and preach. They do it. They entered the temple at daybreak and began, began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. So they don't even know <laughs> that they've already been released. They think they're still in prison. Verse 22, but when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. They, they're just completely out of it. They don't even realize what has just happened. And here's what it says in verse 24. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. Like, who are these guys, they say. Verse 25, and someone told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I love this. I love this. The apostles are doing the exact opposite of what the ruling authorities told them to do. Okay. They are, in effect, rebelling against the cultural climate of the day. They are, in effect, rebelling against the cultural climate of the day. You know what this passage is showing us? Sometimes it's cool and godly to rebel. Ooh, you know? <laughs> now, I know a lot of people think, yeah, it is cool to rebel, but you rebel in the wrong direction. <laughs> you need to learn how to rebel right. And there is a rebellion that is right. So this, this passage here in, um, in, in Acts chapter 5, 24, where the apostles literally go out and do exactly what they were told not to do by the religious authorities, okay, by the civil authorities of the day. They were told to stop doing it. They actually reject their law, and they do the opposite. They disobey the civil authority of the day. This, this passage is utterly important for our age in the post-Christian West because here's the deal, guys, and I know you know this, and I talk about this a lot on this podcast. Secularism and anti-Christian philosophy has taken over the cultural West. The cultural West, which owes its entire culture to the Judeo-Christian philosophies, the Bible, the Gutenberg Press, the Reformation in large part, I think I'm, I'm pretty confident that without a Reformation, you do not have the new world. You do not have democracy. You do not have limited government and checks and balances because what Protestantism, what, what Christian faith brings to the world is the concept that all men are evil. And so if you have a king who is an absolute authority, you could have an absolutely evil king in authority. We need checks and balances against that person, right? This is what biblical faith brings to cultures, and now we are on the backside, the back nine of the cultural West, and kind of descending back into craziness, back into immorality, back into 
lawlessness. You, you see the disrespect for police and authority structures all over our country. You see the disrespect for the, the American flag. You see the disrespect for even the, the cultural heritage of our country. I was uh, perusing the news this week, and remember, uh, this is actually, you know, we, I know we didn't have a news section, but Colin Kaepernick, during Thanksgiving, spoke at an unThanksgiving celebration, criticizing the U.S. and basically just parroting Howard Zinn's, you know, People's History of the United States. If you haven't heard about that book, it's basically a rewriting of American history about how everything that colonial settlers did in this country was evil and terrible, and they raped and they plundered and they pillaged. It's all. It's all a revisionist history. You need to be aware of this because your children are being taught this in public schools today. And it is, I believe, an inspired work of our spiritual enemy to undermine the things that help bring blessing and prosperity to culture, Judeo-Christian philosophy. A lot of people don't realize. I actually got into an argument with one of my relatives last Christmas around this. A lot of people don't realize how much uh, health and human services the colonial settlers brought to the Native Americans. Healing for smallpox, healing for diseases that had been solved long ago in Europe. They brought those medicines here to help the natives survive longer. Life expectancy was like at 23 before the colonists showed up. Now, then they empowered them to live longer. These are all the fruits of the Judeo-Christian world, the cultural revolution that takes place as a result of the Reformation from the 1500s. And today we are on, like I said, the back nine of that, rejecting that, just like Israel rejected God's word in the Old Testament, and they slowly declined into a nation of immorality and chaos and this is what's happening now today in our world. We are living in a growing time of secularism and anti-Christian philosophy and has taken over the public school system, the legal system, and the media enclaves of our society. It is just a fact. It is just a fact. So Colin Kaepernick gets up and speaks about being unthankful. I mean, even just the term unthankful is a completely ridiculous term. Like, really? We want to promote being unthankful? Like, let's... Wake up, like wake up to the disinformation system that is prevailing. Now, you are only going to wake up through the, through the lordship of Jesus to this. Okay, so anyway, we're seeing the subtle increase of Christian opposition from government. Now, this passage in Acts chapter 5, verse 24, when they dis obey the cultural orders of the day by the cultural governmental orders of the day. When, the, when our forefathers in the faith disobeyed them, they were teaching us a powerful lesson. Here's, what the lesson. here's the lesson they were teaching us. There are limits to civil authority for the Christian. Now, let me, let me frame what I'm about to say. There are biblical facts about government that we need to be aware of. Number one, government is established by and authorized by God Almighty. And we should respect it. Romans 13, 1-2. Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there's no authority except God, except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So it's there from God and by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Titus 3, 1 says, Remind people to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2 says, I urge that we pray for, intercede for, and give thanks for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet, godly life. Mark chapter 12, verse 13 to 17, Peter, uh, Jesus gets into a debate about paying taxes, and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. So we should pay taxes. I know, we all hate that passage, but it's true. Our obedience and subject to, subjection to government, Peter says in 1 Peter 2.13, is actually us, do, us submitting to government out of reverence for Jesus. So when we submit to government, we do so, 1 Peter 2.13 tells us, for the Lord's sake to every human institution we are to be subject, for the Lord's sake whether it be to the emperor, emperor as supreme or, or whatever authority in place that God has put in place. The, the Proverbs teaches us that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it every way he wants. You might hate this current president. You might love this current president. You might hate the last one or love the last one. I got news for you. 
whoever is in office, I fully believe, is there for such a time as God has appointed them to be there. Love them or hate them, you can be confident that this person is in place at the directive of God. Now, I am not suggesting that you consider them the chosen one, as was tossed around recently by uh, uh, a political pundit. I, that, that terminology should be reserved only <laughs> for the Lord Jesus Christ. But governmental authority is in place by God. So that is a fundamental biblical truth. But with that being said, there are limits to what we obey as Christians in regards to the state. If the demands of the state do not require us to disobey Jesus, we obey the state. But there are going to be times, Christian, when we cannot obey the state, when we have not obeyed the state, when we should not obey the state. Sometimes the state, government, conflicts with Christian living. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. This goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 1, by the way. Exodus chapter 1, God wants to start redeeming and saving his people. What, what, what's the command of Pharaoh to the midwives of the Hebrew uh, mothers who are pregnant? The, the command, the, the, the governmental dictate is kill them. As soon as they are born, kill them. If it's a boy, kill them. If it's a girl, let her live. And what does it say? There was Hebrew wives... The, uh, the first two uh, names, actually, in the book of Exodus, and uh, I think it's Surah and Purah, if I remember correctly. Anyway, the, the, they are midwives, and they refuse to comply with the Pharaoh's command because Exodus chapter 1, verse 21 says, they feared God. And because they feared God and not Pharaoh, they feared God over Pharaoh, God gave them families of their own. And they set a precedent that has been, those two Hebrew midwives set a precedent that is still alive and well in the church to this day. And it goes right through the narrative of Scripture, civil disobedience in obedience to God. Um, consider what Daniel does when the law is passed that no one should pray in uh, Persia except to Darius the king. And this is a law that is put in place by Daniel's um, contemporaries who are jealous of him, again. Same, same terminology as Acts chapter 5, jealousy from the establishment. They try to put these laws on the books to stop Daniel from praying to God. What does Daniel do? The, the Bible actually says Daniel goes up into his room upstairs, throws open the windows as to say, you know, a big giant, I'm not listening to you, to the cultural powers of the day, and he gets on his knees and he prays, just as he did before. In other words, he disobeyed the law because the law would have caused him to disobey God. Civil disobedience is our heritage as members of the family of God. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They disobey the command to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's statue. Think of Esther, who goes to King Xerxes, even though he does not extend the royal scepter. This was illegal for her to do, but she does it. She disobeys civil government in obedience to God. Here's what I think you need to get in your spirit. True faith in Christ may lead to rebellion against the established norms and cultural opinions of the day. True faith in Christ may lead you to rebel the right way against the established norms. What, what, what does America believe today? We might have to rebel against that. Actually, we do have to rebel against that. What does America practice today? We might have to rebel against that as Christians. What, what's the common opinion about morality, about what is right and wrong for children, what is right and wrong for uh, marriage, what is right and wrong for uh, uh, your, your worship, what gets your attention, what gets your money. You might have to start learning how to rebel rightly against the norms and the opinions of the day. I love what Alice Cooper said, speaking of rebellion. Alice Cooper. Do you guys over there, you young people, you know who Alice Cooper is? Oh, good. I heard that there was an artist, Billy Elish, who did not know who Van Halen was. Did you hear this news? I couldn't believe it. You don't know who Van Halen is? Anyway. Alice Cooper, I don't even know who Billy Elish is. Yeah, so <laughs> evidently this important person I don't know doesn't know who Van Halen is, so maybe I'm the dumb one. I don't know. Anyway, here's what Alice Cooper says. 
and he's a Christian, by the way, saved from drugs and alcohol after years of doing that in the rock and roll industry. Drinking beer is easy, he says. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's rebellion. <laughs> I love that. Like the author of rebellion right here, Alice Cooper, saying, you know what real rebellion is? It's not what I was doing. It's not drugs and sex and all that kind of stuff. Here's what real rebellion is. Real rebellion is being a Christian. And it is. Real rebellion is being a Christian because you know what? When you're, when you're a Christian, you're rebelling against the forces of the world, the common forces of the world, the common opinions of the world. You're also rebelling against Satan, who is the prince of this world, the god of this world, the Bible calls him. And you're also rebelling against your own self. <laughs> you're, you're rebelling against your own spirit, your own inner desires. When you're a Christian, you are rightly rebelling. So rebel on. Power to the rebellious, right? Okay, anyway, the question is being pressed on the church today. Will we concede in matters of conscience? Conscience, I'm sorry, conscience. Will we concede in matters of conscience? Today, there's a growing conflict in the healthcare industry with Christians that have a heartfelt disagreement with abortion and euthanasia. Euthanasia is putting people to death uh, before they naturally die. Now, doctors are being required and asked to do this, and it's getting, I don't know if they're fully required, but the pressure is getting put on them. I, I read this week that a federal judge just struck down protections for medical healthcare workers of conscience who don't want to participate in activities that require them putting a preborn person or an old person to death. This is a federal judge that has ordered this. And forget even questioning the LGBT mob, because it is a mob. And, and I want to separate the mob from, you know, the person that you know at work who's gay or lesbian or transgendered. You should love these people and, and bless these people. They are not your enemies, but there is, their, there is this cultural force, this cultural mob that if you disagree with them in any way, uh, you, you will be attacked, vilified, sued, caricatured by the media uh, endlessly. And yet, we today forget that this idea of rebelling against the cultural norms of society is our birthright. Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, Peter, and the apostles. We have to learn to disobey in matters of conscience again. We forget that 70 years ago in this country, it was civil disobedience that Rosa Parks practiced when she refused to move to the back of the bus during the segregated South, during Jim Crow. Her civil disobedience, by the way, she was a Christian, her civil disobedience led to change for the good. But in the time in which she disobeyed, it cost her and her husband dearly. There was civil disobedience on the part of many Christians who actively sheltered Jews and defied Hitler's orders in Nazi Germany. Uh, I think of the um, hiding place. What was the last name? What's the last name? Carrie, uh, Corey Tenboom and her father, who actively and willfully violated the orders of the state because they are conscious. And by the way, it cost uh, cost uh, the father his life and the sister her life. Corey Tenboom, the only one to live on and tell the story of it. But they hid those Jews because their Christian conscience. Uh, was stronger than their affections for the state. In 2016, there was a North Carolina missionary named Andrew Brunson who was arrested in Turkey for preaching the gospel, refused to shut up about the gospel, so he was arrested on charges of espionage. For heaven's sakes, have you ever seen a picture of this guy? He's the least spy-looking dude in history. He's like your next-door neighbor. He looks like Ned Flanders in real life. Only a good Ned Flanders. <laughs> That's a bad caricature for a Christian. But like the most harmless looking guy ever. And he was in Turkey for 23 years preaching and teaching his church and suddenly arrested and spent two years in prison because he refused to give up preaching. Cultural disobedience, civil disobedience. And I wonder today, and this is the heart of this episode, I wonder today as I look upon the landscape of the American church, do we now, do we today have what it takes to civil to, do, to practice civil disobedience again. I, I wonder if we do. I, I really wonder if the American church that I see today has what it takes to, to, to practice civil disobedience. 
You, you say, no, no, that's not true. I surely would have stood against Hitler. Would you have? Would you really, when everyone that you were friends with believed that the Jews were less than human? Like, do you know that for sure? You say, I would have marched in the civil rights movement if I had been there. Would you have? Now, I, know, I know we can look back with 2020 hindsight vision and say, surely I would have been on the side of the right. But you have got to understand that the people that stood against these regimes, these cultural norms of those generations, they paid for it dearly. And I'm wondering about the American church, if it has the same amount of moral fortitude to do the same today. Are you confident, Christian? Can you say we must obey God rather than men and actually practice it? Do you have that spiritual capacity? I'm going to sound a little harsh here, but I think it needs to be said. I don't know if the American Christianity that I see has what it takes. When or if, if or when, the cultural powers of the day really start to turn up the heat. I say this with passion in my heart because I've been in public ministry for 21 years, public ministry, pastoral ministry, 21 years, and I have watched and seen firsthand the childishness and the foolishness of Christians when they get their feelings hurt, for heaven's sakes, by other Christians, when, when they don't get greeted the right way, or when people don't like them in church, and they leave, and they give up on the faith over small things, or when a pastor makes a decision that they don't agree with, and so, so they just leave. They just leave. I'm out of the church. Pastor did something I don't agree. They don't have all the information. They don't have the whole context. They make assumptions, and then they leave. And I'm thinking, man, those kind of Christians are sitting ducks for the next Nazi regime, whatever that might be, in this cultural, in this culture. I've seen it in my own life as a pastor. You make a decision that's not popular. People don't know the details. They make assumptions. They leave the church because they thought, surely the pastor is off his rocker. And I, and I have a hard time believing that those people who are so utterly sensitive that the least little inconvenience, the least little change in a church upsets them so much that they would have the strength of character to stand against a modern-day Nazi regime. And if I'm being honest, I truly think that the cultural West may have only a few decades left of of true freedom, honestly. I, I, I'm, I'm, I know, I sound like the prophet of doom today, but, but I really think, and if, if I'm reading the tea leaves properly, or at least reading the culture properly, I'm not sure we have much time left to enjoy the freedoms that we currently enjoy. I mean, further proof that I'm wondering if the Christians of today have what it takes to stand and obey God in a post-Christian culture for heaven's sakes, most professing Christians in America can barely make it to church on a weekly basis. They're, they're, they're sidetracked by every other little thing. Their kids' sports, their, their hobbies, their interests. They're, they're barely there. They go to the beach instead of church on, in summer. And it's like, you know, it's unbelievable how many other things take precedent over our obedience to Jesus. And then we're going to say, oh, surely we would be strong if the culture turns against us. I don't think so. Most professing Christians watch church online. Or on television, think that's church, and they don't even go. They don't even show up. They never serve anybody. They never give. And, and, and they think they're going to stand when, when the cultural pressure gets turned up? Let me go, let me go a little further since I'm on my, my soapbox, and I'm, I'm already in it. So let me just continue. Most professing Christians in this culture don't even tithe. They can't even part with one-tenth of their income for the advancement of the gospel. And, and they think they're going to stand for the truth when the cultural powers of the day start making basic Christian practices illegal? No, give, give me a break. I, I, I look at the American church with great consternation to say, we have got to get our act together because this is our heritage. To be able to stand for Christ when the culture says, sit down and shut up. You've got to be sincerely strong in Christ for what may come upon us as a culture. So we see this in Acts chapter 5 to inspire us, to get us ready to live up to those who came before us and pass this faith on to us. 
This is how we did it, guys. Do you think it's going to be any different for you? And so in verse 26, it says, Now the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I have this image I want to show you from Lagos Bible Software. This is the a, 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 a hypothesized image of what the Sanhedrin Council was. It looks like the Supreme Court, right? I mean, that imagine being the accused there in the center, and you're standing, and there's these 71 vicious, evil, angry leaders surrounding you and accusing. It's intimidating. So just, you know, kudos, props to our brothers, Peter, John, James, these, these leaders who stood in that setting and did not back down. Uh, it's just amazing to me. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, here it is, we must obey God rather than men. We must. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging, on, hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Maybe right now you're wondering, well, pastor, I hear what you're saying, but what's the answer? Like, I, I, I'm, I am a little bit nervous about my moral fortitude. Well, okay, here's the answer, two answers. First, we follow our leader and savior, and this terminology in Greek is much better than the English because it's actually a Greek euphemism that referred to the Greek gods as divine heroes. We have a hero in heaven who is with us and can stand with us. And second answer is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always going to step in when we face these challenges. But my, 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 my greater point is back to the fact that if you can't serve God wholeheartedly now when it's easy, how are you going to stand when it's hard? If you can't stand, if you can't stand when there's no pressure, how are you going to stand when there is? You see, what we see here in the apostles is true courage. True courage. The courage today, I'll tell you, we have redefined courage. We think courage is when a guy gets up on a field in a, in a crowd of adoring fans and plays football. Oh, courageous. We think courage is playing on a stage in front of adoring fans. We think courage is coming out as gay or transgendered. We think courage is spouting off on social media to the echo chamber of our own political persuasion. That's not courage. You know what courage is? Courage is being willing to stand alone. Courage is when you are the only one willing to say what is true regardless of how people receive it. There's a cultural critic. His name is Walter Truett Anderson. He said this years ago. He said this 30 years ago how true it is today. 30 years ago, we wrote this. Leader, quote, leaders today are stars, not heroes. Stars are surrounded by crowds. Heroes walk alone. Stars consult focus groups before they speak. Heroes consult their conscience. In other words, he's saying, we look at our cultural leaders today and it's celebrities. It's not heroes, it's not leaders. See, leaders lead when the people that they lead think they're doing something wrong. Leaders challenge assumptions. Leaders make hard decisions. This is what the church is called to do, called to be. Leaders, heroes. And heroes are not celebrated, no. Usually, actually, here's the truth. You know when leaders are celebrated? When they're dead. <laughs> leaders are celebrated. They just actually put Rosa Parks' statue up in Montgomery just this week, I think. She's, she's, she's been dead for a while now right? She's been dead since 2005. Now she's a hero. When she stood, she was vilified and hated. And Christian, this is our heritage. Here's what I want to say. Biblical faith will require us often, will often require us to walk alone. You say, man, we're the only couple in our apartment complex who get up and go to church. Yep. Welcome to Courage. You say, oh, I'm the only one of my friends that gives 10% of my income to the church. They all spend it on drugs and all this alcohol and all this partying. Yup. Welcome to courage. 
You, you, you say, I'm the only one teaching my kids about the faith. Everybody else, they don't do anything, and they have all this other time. And I'm the only one dragging them to church every week, and all my friends and all of our friends and neighbors, they, they sleep in, they hang out, they do what they do. Yes, friend, welcome to courage. If you can't stand in a time of peace, how will you ever stand in a time of war? And this is our heritage in, in, the, in the gospel that Peter and James and John gave their lives to pass on to us. This is why we have to study the book of Acts and learn from their example and follow it. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And I love how Peter is Peter no matter where he is. Isn't that cool? I love it. People always worry about being two-faced. You know what the Holy Spirit does? It makes you one-faced. Holy Spirit makes you the same person no matter who you're in front of. So if you're in front of a hater, you're still a Christian. If you're in front of another Christian, you're still a Christian. I get it. We all have our secret struggles. Everybody has a secret struggle. We understand that. But two-facedness is when you're one kind of person in front of non-Christians and a totally different kind of person in front of Christians. And that has to stop. And the only way that that stops in your life is when the Holy Spirit takes up residence and gives you the confidence that you are God's child, regardless of what people say. Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. In other words, the temperature got turned up. In verse 34, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do to these men. Now, Gamaliel is an important figure, actually, in the book of Acts. Paul's going to talk about this in the book of Acts in chapter 22. Gamaliel is actually Paul's um, teacher. That's why I think Paul was actually part of this council, to be honest with you. And he's hearing the gospel, and these guys stand. And I think it has an, <clears throat> an impression, an impact on him in the long term. But he speaks out and he says this in verse 36. He says, this, this kind of thing has happened before. Verse 36, he says, for before these days, Thaddeus rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men, about 400 joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and it came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, he says, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay, so they only kind of take his advice because they beat them. <laughs> He's like, let them go. He's like, all right, all right, you're right, Gamaliel. All right, come in, let's just beat them up a little bit and then we'll send them out. Anyway, Gamaliel is an important, point, uh, is an important figure here because you know what, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder, church, that when we face hostility, there is always going to be a Gamaliel. There's always going to be one person that God has put there to speak up. And they may not even be Christian. Gamaliel was not a Christian. But they're going to be there, and they're going to help us. And you've got to understand that, again, the power structures that be are in place by God, and God has a way of putting a Nehemiah in the king's court or a um, Gamaliel in the Sanhedrin so that we're protected and we are empowered to continue onward. Verse 41, finishing up this chapter, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to, su to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. They didn't stop. They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. I love it. This is our heritage, guys. This is what a church does. It doesn't stop. It doesn't give up. When people push back, we push on. When culture starts to dislike us, and some of you younger Christians, and I'm speaking specifically to Christians that were raised and kind of coddled through life, and you know your parents gave you everything and never disagreed with you and thought you were wonderful and called you a snowflake and you actually became one, <laughs> you watch out. Because you are, you are being indoctrinated into this idea that the world is peaceful, loving, kind, and good, and Christians are hateful, bigoted, outdated, racist, misogynistic, homophobic, etc., etc. I mean, you, you're being indoctrinated about that. Watch out. The world that claims to be so kind will one day turn on you. You need to be aware that there is a war going on. It is not us versus them. It is us versus the powers of darkness, and we will suffer dishonor for his name. We will suffer. In a world that is governed by Satan, we will suffer dishonor for the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, blessed are you 
in Matthew 5.10, when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and are all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, if we're getting persecuted, if we're getting some pushback, if we're getting disliked in the prevailing culture, we're doing something right. We're doing something right. And this is our heritage. So let's finish up one more time these last three episodes of the podcast. The Church in Conflict, four points about it. Number one, it's inevitable. It's always going to come from an unexpected place. It's good for us. Number three, it's good for us. And then number four, it's leveraged for the gospel. God will use that conflict. God will use that pushback. Just trust him through it and press on. And don't pray for protection. Pray for power. That's our episode. Hey, make sure that you are subscribed on our YouTube.com slash the Deep End TV channel, Facebook.com slash the Deep End TV, Instagram.com slash the Deep End TV, Twitter.com slash Deep End TV. And always you can visit us on the Deep TV and you can pick up one of these tumblers, the Deep End Tumblr on that website for 10 bucks. I think that's cost to us. So check that out. And like and subscribe, thumbs up on the YouTube channel, thumbs up on the YouTube video. We need your feedback. We need your support. Keep sticking with us. Love bringing this content to you. But till next week, I will see you later on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.